Amen. If you have your Bibles today, open up with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to take a one-week hiatus from the Sermon on the Mount. In light of many of the things that have happened this week, I would like for us to take a look at Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to begin together in verse 26. I want us to tackle the question of the sanctity of life. I'm going to talk about what it is to be sacred and holy, for that's what the word sanctity means. The word sanctity means sacred or holy. And I think it's important for us in this day and age and in the culture in which we live to discuss what is sacred and holy about human life. Now, this affects a full range of issues when we talk about the sanctity of life. One of those issues is abortion, of course. But another one of those issues is euthanasia. You know, the word euthanasia comes from the Greek language, and it means a happy death. Now, man may believe that he can provide a happy death by ending a person's physical life. The only happy death is one of a believer in Christ who is being resurrected to new life the next moment. But our culture has bought into the idea that when someone becomes too sick or too costly, too much of a burden that we might consider giving them a happy death and sending them on their way. The issue of sanctity of life also covers an issue called eugenics. Some of you may wonder what that is. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes and how all this plays in to the ideology of those on the side of death. Let me just say to begin this morning, if you are a person who is what is the society and culture calls pro-choice, I'm going to offend you today. But it's not going to be me offending you. It's going to be the Word of God offending you. It will be the Holy Spirit of the living God offending you. It's not my desire to offend anyone unless the offense produces a changed life. So I hope that if you are one of those folks this morning who would define yourself as a pro-choice person, that this morning you would listen to the Spirit of the living God speak to your heart. Because the offense may produce conviction, which may produce a changed life before you leave here today. Because you see, once we tackle this issue and get to the really nuts and bolts of what it's all about, most folks are surprised at what is behind what we see in the television screen. Now, getting back to defining terms a little bit. Sanctity. What is sacred? What is holy about life? Before we get into the Word of God this morning, I want to just kind of set the table for us. Just kind of outline things for us. Try to give us some background on what we're talking about here. So it's going to be a little bit of a different kind of sermon to start with today. But just ride with me on this, okay? You see, secularists today, humanists today, those who do not know Jesus Christ, do not know or maybe even care about the idea of whether or not there is a God, these folks define sanctity of life, that which is sacred and holy, in terms of quantity and quality. 
What is the quality of life that this child will have should he or she be born? If the child is to be born into a home which possesses the means to provide a good life for him or her, if this child will be born healthy and not in any way be a detriment to his mom or dad, then the child is holy. Then the child is worthy of life. Then the child might be born. But if the child is to be born with birth defects or to be born to a single mom or into a home of poverty, if this child is to be a detriment to his mother and father, be too much of an imposition, then the child is not holy. Then the child is not sacred. Then there's a debate at that point whether this child should even be allowed to come into the world. And in fact, for the benefit of the child, they will argue even, or his parents, the child should die. The heart should stop beating in the womb and the child should die. This is where the pro-death, pro-abortion movement, this is the argument, this is the basis from which they debate us on the issue of life, quality, and quantity. So much so that a recent survey said 11% of people surveyed said that if they could know that their child was predisposed to be obese, he or she should be aborted. Over 10%. This is how pervasive. So imagine the statistics on such a survey when discussing birth defects or other issues of quality of life. But it's not just abortion that sanctity of life issues hit. It's also the issue of euthanasia. You see, if a man, an elderly man, could be kept alive by modern medicine so that he might return to the golf course, that he might continue to go to Thursday night catfish night down at the restaurant with his wife, that he might be restored to some semblance of health he had before his illness, perhaps he's worthy to receive such treatment. But if he is to be made well and be in chronic pain or be a financial burden on his family or, heaven forbid, the government, then perhaps he should not be given. And perhaps he should not be given the treatment at all and just be given a good death. Three of our states have already determined that that's an option. Washington, Oregon, Montana have already passed laws where doctor-assisted suicide is allowed. The culture of death continues its march. What about this scenario? If a person is young and is in need of expensive treatment to cure the illness that they face, if they're 45 and under, then perhaps they're worthy because they have a quantity of life perhaps ahead of them. Perhaps they'll live another 40 or 50 years. But if the person is 70 or above, maybe we should just give them a pill so they can be free of pain as the natural order of things progresses and they die. This is how the other side, and when I say other side, I'm saying I'm not defining it in terms of pro-life, pro-choice things. I'm talking about those that follow 
biblical Christianity and what God says about life and those who don't. And those who don't, whether you call them pro-choice people or secular humanists, this is where they argue. This is the place from which they argue their side of things. Sacred, holy is defined in terms of quality and quantity. And we see this all over the place, but I'm just going to give you one more brief example from Planned Parenthood and its founder, Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist. Now, eugenics is the study or belief in the possibility of improving the quality of the human race by means of discouraging reproduction by persons who have genetic defects or are presumed to have inheritable, undesirable traits and encouraging the other side of it, the reproduction of those who are presumed to have inheritably desirable traits. This is what the founder of Planned Parenthood believed. She was a eugenicist. And this woman was radical. One quote from a book that was put out in 1920, her book, Margaret Sanger's book, Woman in the New Race, nothing more or less. Now this is her work she's talking about. She says her work is nothing more or less than the facilitation of the process of weeding out the unfit, of preventing the birth of defectives or those who will become defectives. She wrote later in the Birth Control Review, the most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the overfertility of the mentally and physically defective. It's weeding out people that are undesirable. We don't want more poor people. We don't want people who have birth defects. We don't want people who are undesirable. We want a more perfect human race. This is where Planned Parenthood found its, this is where its founder found herself at the turn of the 20th century. This is her belief system. See, sometimes we paint this in very cosmetically appealing terms. Well, I'm pro-life, and he's pro-choice. But what are we really saying? What we're saying is, is that I am pro-God, pro-Christ, pro what Scripture says about life. And this other person, unfortunately, doesn't know Christ or doesn't know something about Christ, doesn't know what it is to be born in the image of God. And therefore, they are arguing their side of things from something that is totally and completely unbiblical. And I dare say, and I will say, it is demon doctrines. Almost half the population in America considers themselves pro-choice. And they support organizations such as Planned Parenthood. And the result has been legalized abortion since 1973 and the legalization of euthanasia, as I said, in three states. That's the other side. What does God say? What does God say about life? What does God say about abortion? What does God say about euthanasia? All of these things, eugenics, it can be summed up under one big subject. And that is that you and I were created in the image of God. We need to understand something of what it means to be created in the image of God. And we'll know all the answers when people come to us with questions concerning abortion or euthanasia or eugenics or any other kind of issues concerning life. 
you look with me in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created us in his image. We're special. We are unique creatures upon this earth because we have been created in the image of God. Now, most people, you say, what does it mean to be in the image of God? They'll say, well, we have a soul. We have a spirit. That's true. That is part of it. But it's so much more than that. And once we realize what it is to be created in the image of God, never again would we ever, in our wildest dreams, if you've ever found yourself there, be able to argue a pro-abortion position or pro-euthanasia position when talking about life and death. To be created in the image of God means, first of all, that we were created to reflect or represent God's glory on the earth. That is, God wanted to glorify himself in us. We were to be a reflection of God's character and God's power on this earth. That, that was the first thing. We are a reflection of who God is and what he is. He wanted that for us. Number two, he created us morally good, morally perfect. We were not created sinners. We were created free from the effect of sin. Adam and Eve had never sinned. They were morally perfect in that sense. Now, the fall has marred the image of God in us. We're sinners. So as sinners, we no longer perfectly reflect, reflect God's character and God's power as we did in the garden. And, of course, we're not morally perfect in any sense of the word. All of sin had fallen short of the glory of God. But because we're saved as Christians, we now are seeing that restored. More and more and more we are reflecting God's glory. More and more and more we are a demonstration of God's character and God's power as we live life by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. And more and more and more we are morally perfect. We become more holy as we are more like Jesus. As the Holy Spirit works in us, we become sanctified. We become more and more like Jesus Christ. So we more and more and more are reflecting the image of God that we were created to be in the garden. A third thing is, is that we were created, and we can see this in this passage of Scripture, and these passages in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, we were created with the capacity for loving, committed relationships, both with God and someone of the opposite sex. Relationship. God wanted to have a relationship with us. God wanted us to have a relationship with someone of the opposite sex in the case of marriage. Now, today, I very well may go to McDonald's and get a hamburger. I might do that today. When I go to the window, I will ask the lady for a hamburger. She will give me a hamburger. Because a hamburger is called a hamburger. Now, I could go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and tell them to give me a bucket of hamburger. And they're going to give me chicken. 
Chicken is chicken and hamburgers are hamburgers. You can call them anything you want to. It doesn't change the nature of what it is. Hamburger is always going to be a hamburger. I can call it something else. I can call chicken hamburger. It's still chicken. Now you can call two men joining together a marriage, but it is no more a marriage than a hamburger is a chicken. Okay? Two women being married. That's not a marriage. Marriage was defined by God. Not man. It's not some subjective idea that we can tweak at our own bidding. God defined what marriage is, both in this passage and in chapter 2 of Genesis. And part of being created in the image of God is the capacity that we have to be joined together as one with someone of the opposite sex. And in turn, being fruitful and multiplying. That's part of being in the image of God. Now, statistics tell me that over 70% of the people in the United States of America seem to believe that it is inevitable that same-sex marriage is going to be the law of the land someday. And 50% of the people support abortion. Now, it shouldn't be surprising to us that those statistics are true. Because there are a whole lot of lost people all around us who need Jesus Christ. Who have no understanding what it is to be created in the image of God. Who Satan has duped. That's the world in which we live. But when we know the truth, we stand on what is true. We, we don't go back. We don't compromise the word of God. Being created in the image of God means we have a capacity for relationship both with God and with someone of the opposite sex in marriage, which allows us to join with God in the creative process. And that's another part of what it is to be created in the image of God. We have the capacity to be creative. We have that capacity in a variety of different ways, but one of the most important and wonderful of which is the fact that we can be in this relationship with someone of the opposite sex and see from that another life come to be. It's a wonderful thing to join with God in that creative process. And finally, another thing, or just quickly, a couple more. Another thing is, is that we have been given dominion over the earth. God tells us here that we are to be <coughs> fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, God did not say we own the earth. The earth is his and everything in it, including us. By being in the image of God, we have been given the great privilege of having dominion over the earth. We are his representative authority on the earth, which means that we need to take care of it. We need to take care of the earth and rule over it. So, being created in the image of God means that I reflect I'm a representation of God's glory on the earth. I morally have the capacity through Christ to once again be made morally pure. I have the capacity for loving relationship with God and with someone of the opposite sex. That I have dominion over the earth to manage and rule God's creation. And I can be creative with Him because I have free will and the ability to be creative. I have a soul, a spirit, and a conscience. So what about that baby in the womb? What about that man who's laying in the bed sick, costing us money, may never be restored to perfect health again? Where is the value of a fetus? 
The value of a fetus, the value of a man who lays today in a vegetative state even, is the fact that they are created in the image of God. Now how does a man, how does a woman in a vegetative state glorify God? I no more know that than I know how the rocks cry out. But the Bible says that even the rocks will cry out in worship of the living God. So that man in that vegetative state, I have no authority under heaven or earth to put his life to an end. Because as long as he draws breath, he gives glory to the living God. That baby in the womb, I have no more authority or right to end that life. I mean, that is a life which gives glory to God. Even in the womb, gives glory to God. There was a case study once. A professor at a world-proclaimed, a world-acclaimed, rather, medical school posed a medical switch situation, an ethical problem to his students. And this is what he said. Here's the family history. The father has syphilis. The mother has TB. They've already had four children. The first is blind. The second has died. The third is deaf. And the fourth has TB. Now the mother is pregnant again. The parents come to you for advice. They are willing to have an abortion if you decide that they should. What do you say? The students gave various opinions, and then the professor had them break up into groups so they could consult with one another. The groups came back to, with their answer to the professor after a few moments, and each group to a person said we would recommend abortion. And the professor then said, Congratulations. You just killed Beethoven. We have no earthly idea how God intends to get glory from the child in the womb, even if that child we know to have birth defects. We have no idea how God might get glory from that life of a person who's no longer who they used to be, whose body is breaking down, whose body is falling apart, who may even be in pain. We have the capacity in our pain, we have the capacity in our weakness to glorify God in ways we never would otherwise. No, we don't, not any of us want to go through those times. We don't want a thorn in the flesh. But Paul says, in my weakness... Have I discovered the strength that is our God? We have no idea what God has in mind. And we have no right to end a life from which God might get glory. What is sacred? What is holy? For the Christian, it is what God has determined is sacred and holy. It has nothing to do with what we might, in our generation and in our culture, Define as quality of life or quantity of life. So where are we? Some pastors might come before you at the end of a sermon such as this and say, well, this means that we all should support a specific party and vote a specific way. Isn't that right? Isn't that what Jerry Falwell told us? And that was so many religious leaders in the 80s told us and in the 90s told us, vote Republican because they are more righteous than the Democrats. 
The flip side is the Democrats say, well, on a host of other issues, the Democrats more reflect Jesus. So you have this little argument within the church, and we've allowed Satan to take the political process and tear us apart as the church of Jesus Christ. Because we thought in supporting some particular politician or political party, we were going to see the kingdom of God ushered in to the United States of America. How foolish can we possibly be? Let me share with you just a couple of things. Maybe it'll wake some of you up. Maybe it'll offend some of you. I don't really care today much. <laughs> it does, but I want to read you something else. I don't read a lot from here, but I'm going to read you something else. A friend of mine by the name of Ted Elmore wrote recently. He says, I've lived through some tumultuous times in the United States of America. And it got me thinking. President Eisenhower, a Republican, appointed Earl Warren as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. The Warren Court was the most liberal activist court in the history to date. Now, they did some good things. We're not saying everything they did was bad. But the Warren Court was the most liberal to date. Eisenhower also appointed Walter Brennan, a liberal Democrat who led the liberal activist faction of the court. Warren was a California attorney general who was a prime mover in the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. It was the Warren court that outlawed public school-sponsored prayer, led by the chief justice appointed by a Republican. Richard Nixon, a Republican, appointed Warren Burger to replace Earl Warren as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Among other decisions, it was the Burger Court, with him voting in favor, he was with the majority here, Mr. Burger, that legalized abortion in Roe v. Wade. Ronald Reagan, the people hold up as some kind of conservative saint nowadays, gave us Anthony Kennedy who was the swing vote in the re recent decision to strike down the Defense of Marriage Act. George W. Bush gave us John Roberts as Chief Justice, who was the swing vote in the health care vote, which is going to fund the murder of innocent children everywhere. They've done us really well, haven't they, these Republican politicians. And we have put our faith in the Republican Party instead of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of the living God. And it is time for the church to wake up. Either God is real or He's not. If He's not, let's stay home and watch the NFL. We can find something more fun to do than to sit here if we're just around here playing games. If God is real and He is the living God, then we can pray. And we can depend on Him. And we can see him do real things that will really change the culture in which we live. But the problem is, is the church of Jesus Christ has decided we will sleep in the light of the gospel. We will bury our head in the sand. We will pretend everything is okay and just go to a ballot box every two to four years and elect someone to go be our moral conscience and voice for the nation. But the fact of the matter is, the church is the moral conscience of the nation. It is the people of God who are the moral conscience of a nation. We understand what it is to be created in the image of a living God who saves from sin. They don't understand that. And too many of these politicians don't know Jesus Christ, and they'll tell you anything to be elective. And there are many of them which live under the oppression 
the influence and maybe even possession of demonic forces. Paul said in Ephesians 6, we live in a spiritual battle. These things are real. You see, I did a lot of thinking this week. Too many times over the last 30 or 40 years, preachers have stood in a pulpit and said, you need to vote. And not enough have said, you need to look at yourself and get serious about your relationship with Christ with you. And we as a church need to get serious about our relationship and our call to ministry as a people of God. Don't you cede to someone else your opportunity to be the voice, to be the hands, to be the feet of the body of Christ. We should oppose abortion. But it's not just in what we oppose. It's also in what we support. We should oppose abortion and we should support those in crisis pregnancy. We should love them. We should pray for them. We should be willing to adopt their children. It's one thing to tell somebody, don't go abort your baby. It's another thing to say, I will help you whatever it takes so you do not abort your baby. We should oppose euthanasia, but we should support those who are chronically ill. We should bless them. We should love them. We should care for them. We should visit them. And we should care for, love, and support those who take care of them. There's no more difficult job in this world than to be a caretaker of someone who is chronically ill. All the churches I've pastored, I've seen more people than I could tell you who their own health has suffered as they themselves have taken care of someone who did not have their own health. It's one thing to say we oppose euthanasia. It's another thing to say we'll help you. We'll love you. How can I serve you in this difficult time? We should oppose eugenics and the idea that some are worthy because they'll have a good quality of life and others are not. Some will add to the society and the cultures and others will not. These ideas are from hell itself and we should oppose them. But at the same time we're opposing them, we should champion racial reconciliation in the world in which we live. That every person, regardless of the color of their skin or where they're born or their socioeconomic status in this life, are created in the image of God. Someone Jesus Christ loves and died for. You see, we can talk about all the things we oppose, but in every breath that we say something about our opposition, we should say something about what we support and what we are doing to be the body of Christ. Faith without works is dead. It's dead. It has no power, no effect, no change. God expects so much more from us, and He has so much more for us if we just have the faith of the mustard seed to see the reality of it. Now I'm about to close. So those that are angry and mad and offended today, it won't be much longer. You can go eat spaghetti. All right? Hopefully there's not too many of those here. But let me just say in closing, 
this is not a sermon in which I intend to attack anyone. It's not a sermon in which I intend to attack any political party. It's not a sermon in which I intend to attack any particular person. What it's meant to be is a sermon that helps us to see a picture of what it is to be created in the image of God and how people on the other side see things, how it is that they come to the conclusions that they do, how it is they see the world around them. Because you see, we we might sit back and say, I just don't understand how someone can argue for abortion. I watched a woman this week who filibustered on the Texas Senate floor argue for the ability and the right to kill a child. And it was the most incredible thing because they've proven now that children in the womb after 20 weeks can feel the abortion. They can feel pain. So they can feel themselves being torn limb from limb. And this woman knows that. And she is arguing for the right to do that. And I say, how can someone think this way? How can they come to this conclusion? Well, they're lost. That's, that's how people come to this conclusion. They don't know Christ. They're under the influence of the demonic. And they see sacred or holy in terms of quantity and quality rather than in the image of God. We don't look at it as quality-quantity question. We don't look at it that way. It's all about the image of God and being created in His image. So it's not meant to be an attack. It's meant to be an eye-opener. Far too long we have put our trust in men and parties, and political process. Far too long we have compromised and not known really why we believe what we believe. We've not had a good moral foundation built upon God's Word for what we believe, for the debates and arguments that we make. And this morning I just want you to leave here with a deep understanding of why you believe what you believe concerning the issues of abortion, euthanasia, eugenics, why folks on the other side believe what they believe. And I want you to leave here today and listen to me here with a greater idea, with an encouragement and a faith that we worship a living God who can change things, who is looking all over the earth for a people, looking all over the United States for a people who will stand in the gap Believe and have faith in Him, trust Him, pray and seek His face. We quote all the time the passage from Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name. Well, you know what? We are His people called by His name. Rather than quote the verse and talk about being humble and repenting of our sin, we might just try it someday and realize that we ourselves are the ones in need of it. We ourselves are in need of repentance. What happened this week is tip of the iceberg it's a result of something that's been going on for a long time our country has been needing in need of revival for a long time but you know things have been dark before and God has revived our nation and brought us back to himself and we need it again and it starts with you it starts with you personally believing in God Hebrews 11.6 is one that every person in here ought to have memorized. I quote it enough that you ought to just know it, even if you've never learned it on your own. 
Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Anyone who comes to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. We're created in the image of God. He's looking for a people of faith. Will you repent? You see, I think most of us need to repent. I think most of us have been complacent and apathetic, and I think we need to repent. Most of us have not been praying and seeking God's face. Most of us, most of us have not been praying about the issues we complain about, and we need to repent. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for creating us in the image of God. You, the one true God, thank you for allowing us to know you, to have a relationship with you, to love you. <coughs> and Father, I pray today for us because we have been complacent as a church, Lord. We just, the church in the United States, in this nation, Lord, we've been complacent. We've compromised. Some have turned their back on the faith completely and totally. Father, we are sorry for our sin, and we ask your forgiveness. And we repent of our sin, Lord, and we ask you to use us, Jesus. We ask you to draw us to yourself and use us for whatever you want here, Lord God, to help bring this nation, this people to yourself. Father, for those who don't know you, who are living in such deep darkness, we pray for the souls for their souls to be saved. We pray deep conviction to come upon them. For Miss Davis, who was on the floor of the Senate this week, we pray deep conviction come upon her for her sin. And we pray, Father, she'll repent and give her heart to you and be saved. The veil will be lifted from her eyes and that she'll see clearly, Lord, you and your will. And Father, we pray today for forgiveness because we've entrusted ourselves to a Republican or Democratic party. We've entrusted ourselves to politicians rather than entrusting ourselves to you. And we are sorry for our sin, Lord. We confess it to you and ask, Lord God, that you would forgive us. And as we repent, we pray that you would use us, that truly we would be the salt and light you intend for us to be. That, God, we would again have the moral authority and the moral voice of this nation, the moral conscience of this nation, to be that again. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, we invite you to come. If you're not sure that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord of your life, we invite you to come. And this morning, if this sermon has touched you because you know you've been one of the people that have entrusted yourself to politicians and organizations and people instead of the living God, then this morning I invite you to come to the altar and pray and repent. And commit yourself to believe in a living God who loves you. Commit to yourself, yourself to have faith in Him. Commit yourself to believe in Him and believe that He'll reward you for diligently seeking Him. Would you do that this morning? Let's stand together. Let's sing together. If God's called you, you come this morning. You come now while we sing. And all of you is more than enough for all of me for every thirst and 
satisfy me with your love and all I have in you is more than enough you my supply my breath of life still more awesome than I know you're my reward worth living for still more awesome than I know and all of you is more than enough for all of me Satisfy me with your love, and all I have in you is more than enough. You're my sacrifice. Of greatest price, still more awesome than I know. You're my coming king, you are everything, still more awesome than I know, and all of you is more than enough for all of. Anybody would like to come to the altar, you come join me. Let's just, let's just pray right now and ask God to move in our country and move in our lives. Father, we humble ourselves before you because we know you are God and we are not. And we know that we are weak and you are infinitely powerful. We know, Lord God, that you are omnipotent and omniscient. You are all-powerful. There are no limits to your power and your ability, and you are all-knowing. You are full of wisdom. And we know, Lord, that you are love. You've told us to love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God before 
Father, he who loves not knows not God, for God is love. We know, Lord, that true love is defined in your character and who you are. God, we love you and we want to love you more and we want to love the things you love and be a part of what you're doing. And we pray you open our eyes, that you show us, Lord Jesus, where you're at work and how we can be a part of what you're doing, that we might join you in it. And we ask, God, that you would revive our hearts. We're sorry for how, Lord, we have sinned against you in any way that we have and we confess it and repent it, repent of it. And we ask you keep us in repentance, Lord, that we will follow you in great faith. Jesus, you are wonderful, you are good, you are holy, and you are just, and you are full of compassion and love and mercy. And we worship you for who you are, and we pray that we be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, uh, just have one announcement before we're dismissed today, just one. Uh, that is, we're going to have lunch together. Uh, this is going to be a, a fundraiser opportunity for us with our youth. Our youth are going to camp, and uh, so uh, we want to help fund that camp. We want to make it as cheap as possible so we can have as many kids go as possible uh, to camp. Uh, so this is a spaghetti supper for a love offering. Not asking for any specific amount. You just give what you feel led to give. Eat as much spaghetti as you want, all right? And it'll be good. I promise you that. All right? Uh, so when we're dismissed, if you'd like to be a part of that, and guests, we invite you to come. Uh, you, you just come on down and, and enjoy that time with us, and we'll have a great time together, and we'd love to get to know you better. But just walk right out these doors. Just keep walking all the way. Just go around the labyrinth, stay right, and go all the way to the end. Take a left and take your first right. To the dead end, left and right. Got that? Go to the dead end. Yeah, you just follow the crowd. Uh, yeah, that, that's a better way done. That's good. Uh, that, yeah, not, not, on, yeah, not in life, but just this morning. Yeah, follow the crowd. That's good. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to have a good lunch together. I hope that all you guys can stay. I hope we can get to know you better as far as guests are concerned. Let's stand together. Let's pray and we'll go. Father, we ask your blessing upon us. We pray your blessing upon our nation. We pray your blessing upon this church. May we be a people holy and perfect in you, Lord Jesus. May we walk perfectly in accordance with your ways. And Father, may we truly be a loving people. Father, may we not be known for what we oppose, but may we be known, Lord, more so by our love, by our compassion, and for our passion for you and how it leads us, Lord God, to help the hurting, to share the gospel, to love the unlovable, to care for those no one else will. Give us vision and give us ideas. Help us to know how to do that. May we see where you're at work and follow you in that. Father, please bless us this week that we may be a blessing, and that we, Lord, may in turn give you praise for the blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.